Please be seated. As you are seated, turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 5. Um, children, age 3 and 4, you're just, if uh, you'd like to attend our um, junior worship, they are meeting in room 134. So children 3 and 4 would like to attend that, you are dismissed to that. If you do need a Bible, we do have a Bibles available in the foyer. Please pick one up. I do have a number of passages which aren't on the screen, so... So we'll jump around a couple passages through, but um, as we go through Advent, we will continue to study uh, Matthew, and uh, you know because as we remember the coming of Jesus Christ, we focus on why He came and His message, and so we'll just dive and keep uh, keep at that. And you know, every message, every page of the Bible ultimately points to Christ in some way or another. And certainly as life does. And as we look through over the next few months, next few weeks, headed towards Christmas, we'll see some of his teaching and, and how we even see Jesus in um, talking about why he came inside of his own teaching. So today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. Um, I'm going to be focusing on verses 1 through 5, but let me go ahead and read verses 1 through 9. Matthew 5, 1 through 9. This is the word of God. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In the verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage, we need you to do a spiritual work in us. Father, we need you to develop a heart in us, an attitude in us, a perspective in us, one that pleases you. Father, we are incapable of it of ourselves, and we'll see it as we get into this passage. It's something we need to see you develop, you to grow in us. And in light of that, God, we need you to send your Holy Spirit. Send your Spirit into, into us as we gather, into our lives, Father, that we may understand your word. We may be transformed by your word, but Father, we may go and live lives empowered by your word, Father, and that is all the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, as we come to your word, teach us, lead us, guide us, fill us, Father, that we may live to go, may come out of this sermon to live to do your will. We ask you, God, for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this passage is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's chap sermon on the Mount is verses is chapters 5 through 7 of the book of Matthew. Three chapters of the book of Matthew, which are focused on the teaching of Jesus. Um, we see why it's called the Sermon on the Mount from verses 1 and 2. When Jesus saw the crowds and he went up on a mountain, and that's the mount, and where he taught his disciples by preaching this sermon, which lasts three chapters. Um, it's at a transitional point for Jesus' ministry. If we look back to chapter 4, we see a few things happening and how this grows on it. In chapter 4, verse 17, we saw Jesus talking, and he said, Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. And now, as he goes into the sermon, he is going to talk about what 
citizenship in the kingdom of God looks like. What behaviors, what life, what pattern, what attitudes ought to describe a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so it's important that we get that. If you look back to chapter 4, you'd also see him selecting uh, a number of disciples to be his closest followers. These would later become apostles. But what does he do? But we see in the sermon that he draws these four to come up and to sit with him and to hear him explain the scriptures to them. Finally, at the end of chapter 4, we see a Jesus busy preaching and healing and the crowds are gathering towards him and verse one tells us that because he saw these crowds and all the people were gathering around him assembling around him that's the reason he went up on the mountain and his disciples went to him and so for all the work of jesus that he did in terms of healing and and driving out demons and any miracles that he did we still see where his main focus in his ministry was It was in bringing God's word to bear on the lives of the people that were around him. And his main method of of seeing change happen in the world was not going to happen through um, miracles or revivals or large emotional gatherings. It was going to be in the changed lives of God's people. It was going to see people who are brought in into a new kingdom with a new perspective and living lives to the glory of God. It was going to be demonstrated by a people who live by a different principle and a different aim and for a different meaning than the rest of the world. Transformed by God's grace, living in in God's love, living with new purpose, living in joy. So Jesus spends three chapters talking with his disciples not doing miracles, not gathering large crowds, but talking about changed lives, God's law, the human heart, marriage, giving, fasting, praying, humility, all things that describe genuine faith. Now, the verses that we read just a few minutes ago, they're part of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes, the, the Beatitudes. And the term Beatitude It originally comes from a Greek word, euodomai, which means flourishing or a blessed state. And you can see why it would be called um, that, because every line starts off with blessed. That's a Greek word, makareos. Blessed. The word blessed is, you know, the best way to translate that word, makareos, because these are eight qualities that are truly blessed by God. Eight qualities that the world may not hold up as important, but God certainly does, and that God values as part of his kingdom. You know, these are, these are surprising qualities for us, especially living in this world where self-promotion and pride um, are often exalted, and to see that these are the qualities that actually have God's favor. The world would say that some of these qualities would hold us back. And the world would, in fact, say, many people say that these are terrible qualities for people to have. But Jesus says, no, you know, these are the qualities that matter. These are the qualities that matter in the esteem of God, in the perception of God. And so that's why, as we understand this word blessed, you know, some would translate it happy or especially as being favored by God. These are, these are qualities. These are people with, with uh, patterns of life that, that God favors, that he blesses, that he enjoys. Now, there's eight of them. 
that are there, and I've kind of divided them up into different sections, and each section is going to get its own sermon. Uh, this, this, and I'll tell you a little bit how I'm dividing it up here. Uh, verses 3 through 5 is my first section, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Those are the attitudes of the, of the people of God. That's the attitudes of God's kingdom. And so we see three attitudes which are expressed there. Verse 6 is a transition because it takes from, moves from attitudes then into, um, into actions. And what's the transition point? The transition is our motivation. Verse 6 talks about the motivation of the people of God. And then verses 7 through 9, they describe the way that transformed people live in the world, the way they interact with others, the way, the way they interact with their world. And then verses 10 through 16 talk about four results of being a disciple. It starts with persecution, but then it leads into witness and transformation of others. So we have those four sections, but the one I want to focus on today is verses 3 through 5, where we see three attitudes of a disciple who lives in the kingdom of God. Now again, these may not be things that we would think would make us happy. In fact, one of them is about mourning. We think about his sadness itself. We wouldn't necessarily think that they're favored by God or that they're blessed. Poor in spirit, mourning in grief, um, being meek. Now, if you'd ask most people what really make them happy, uh, many would say things like pleasure, wealth, acceptance of others, power. People would say things like, if I had more money, if I could work less, if I get the people around me to do what I wanted them to do, um, if I could go on vacation, you know, if I could be in a relationship that I want. You know, those are some of the things that people think would truly make them happy where they'd feel like they were truly blessed if they had those things. Now, if we're going to take Jesus' word seriously, you know, we need to reevaluate and redirect our own attitudes. And we need to bring them in line with what, with what God values. We need to stop thinking that happiness and blessing comes from wealth, acceptance, power, or pleasure, or those things. We need to stop thinking that it comes from the world. But it's the kind of life the kind of favor and the, and the kind of happiness that comes from walking closely with Jesus. There's vast unhappiness in the world today. You know, we, maybe we know it inside of ourselves. We know as we look at statistics of suicide and, and depression. Uh, CDC said there were 50,000 suicide deaths in 2022. It says that over 18% of Americans have been diagnosed with depression. You know, and that doesn't speak of the untold numbers of those who deal with it silently without being diagnosed. And there's a lot of factors with those, physical, environmental. There's enormous suffering inside of our world. We experience much of it in our own lives. Sometimes we feel hopelessness. We don't measure up. Sometimes it's the hopelessness that nothing will ever get better. Being overwhelmed with the suffering around us. Sometimes it just comes from taking the wrong standard of what a successful life looks like. The feeling that we don't have it all together. We're not going to get it all together, so we give up. Now, Jesus, though, as we look at this, he gives us a different attitude, a different understanding of our life in the world. And he gives us a different pattern of thinking. If you turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, I don't have a slide on this. Philippians chapter 3, I think it describes something which is a pattern of the Christian life and a pattern which we see in all of these Beatitudes that Jesus gives us. And it shows us the idea that, that, that going down comes before going up. 
It's surprising that going down that we might go up in the end, but that's the biblical model, and it's repeated time and again. We go down that we may later enjoy um, you know, God's movement of us upward. Now, we like to think of us becoming a Christian and life just being simple from there. There's only upward from that point on. That is only skyward, and the sky's the limit. Things will get better and better, but that's not what we see inside of the scriptures. Not what we see in Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, I think, describes the normal Christian life for us here, describes what Jesus says. Verse 10, he, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Right? How do we know the power of the resurrection of Christ? How do we know the power of God in our life? He says that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So how, how, do we, how is he going to know that power? What is he saying? In order to know the power of the resurrection, he has to start in participating in the death of Christ. The way up. Before there's any way up, there is a way down. And the way down is what Paul describes in Philippians, and it's what Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount. It means a lot to know that we are walking with God. It means a lot to know that we have his favor, to know that we have a clear conscience, that we stand before God and forgiven, that we have the hope of heaven, that we have a pattern of life, that, God's, that God, God, we walk in God's pleasure throughout this life. And that's where the Beatitudes come in. So the first one we want to look at today is, is in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so we'd ask, are we poor in spirit or are we rich in spirit? Now, as we look at any of the Beatitudes, you'll see there's a pattern. First, uh, there's a blessing that's pronounced. And secondly, we see a group of people or a pattern of life that God blesses. And then third, we see what the blessing actually is. And all of them have that pattern. And we see that with the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, in this case, who is the ones who is favored by God? See the answer? Those who are poor in spirit. And it seems simple enough, and maybe you could explain it pretty quickly. Maybe we'd just say being humble or something like that. Um, but, you know, I want to take time to think about it because Jesus says it in a certain way here. When Jesus said being poor in spirit, we might think of a comparison, right? What, what would a comparison being to being poor be? Or maybe an opposite, be being rich, right? Or being wealthy, right? So the ones who are favored by God are the ones who are poor, not the ones who are rich, it's the ones who don't have something who, in this case, are experiencing the blessing of God rather than the ones who actually have it. Now, before we go on to see what it thinks about, what it says about being poor in spirit, you know, we need to see how that message is already different than what the world tells us. The world says that people who seem to have it all are the ones who've already experienced the blessing of God. Not only the financially rich, but maybe those who are rich in intelligence or those who are blessed in, in friendships or those things. Those are the ones who are blessed. But the Beatitudes remind us that those who have wealth and pleasure and power, you know, any of these things, are not necessarily favored by God. I mean, sure, we might think that they are, but Jesus' instructions are more clear than our experiences and they're more clear than our own expectations, the focus of Jesus here, though, isn't just on material wealth, though, right? It's not on money. His focus is on spirit. So we see God blesses those. He favors those who are poor in spirit. What does spirit mean? What, what do we mean by that? Now, the Greek word that he uses here is the word pneuma. 
It's a word that describes wind or describes breath sometimes, but when it talks about the human person, it's talking about the spirit, that the energy of our soul, you know, the, the energy of our immaterial being, you know, the energy that we bring to the world. So you can think of what a spirited person is. A spirited person is a person who has an inward quality of, of emotion and energy, and it shows up in everything that he or she does. Just like the wind, you know, the, the spirit has no body, but it still acts. Just like the wind, and it doesn't have a form, but it blows things over. And so our spirit has no physical form, but it drives and it inspires all of our actions. It blows us into activity. And so what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, let's again think of the opposite. What would it mean to be rich in spirit? I mean, that is a person who acts like he has it all together. It's a person who thinks he doesn't need God, that he doesn't need Jesus, that he doesn't need the Christian faith. He has what he needs. He's a good person. And sure, he might have some weaknesses here and there, but he can make up for them. He's you know, internally motivated. And why would he seek God? We can think about what a rich person would need. A rich person you know, with money, he doesn't need a food bank. You know, a rich person doesn't need personal loans. Rich person is unlikely to carry a credit card balance. You, know, you won't see Warren Buffett panhandling up by the, the mall over here. You know, they don't need the help of family. You know, a wealthy person has what they need to cover their expenses. The wealthy doesn't need anything or anyone else to meet their needs. They can do it themselves. And so a person who is wealthy or rich in spirit is a person who acts like he doesn't need anything from God or others. You know, it's what we would think of as spiritual arrogance. He has everything he needs to please God. He thinks he's a pretty good person. And because he's good, because he's a pretty good fellow, God must like him also. That's spiritual pride. It's not honest. It's dangerous to be so dishonest to ourselves and what our true nature is. Dangerous to be so dishonest with God. Because what Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is not for the proud. It is not for the spiritually arrogant. It is not for the self-sufficient. It is for the poor in spirit. So let's look at three things which I think are critical for being poor in spirit from verse 3. The first thing it means to be poor in spirit is that you know that you are a sinner and that you need forgiveness. It means you know you are a sinner and you need forgiveness. The arrogant do not believe they have sinned against God. Turn over to First uh, John. I don't have a slide for this one again. First John chapter one. It has an important word for us. First John chapter one, and we'll look in verses eight through ten. You know, again, this passage speaks. You know, gives a picture of what spiritual arrogance means, or someone who's rich in spirit, as compared to those who are poor in spirit. First John one eight says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, it says we deceive ourselves, like we're living in a state of self-deception, we're lying to ourselves, we're not being honest with what our situation is, we're not being honest with um, what our true nature is, and it says, and the truth is not in us. We have, we have, blown away what God has declared is true about us. We've, we've ignored what God has said to us in his word. 
Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we have, say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. You know, God in his kingdom has no place for liars. And the greatest lie that we can say is we have not sinned against God when God says that we have. And it's a full face defiance of God. And so we see in a passage like this, you know, the arrogant believe they're fine just the way they are. They would not confess their sins to God. They would not confess their sins to another person, not admitting they've done something wrong, failing to be honest with the actual sin that they've done. But the poor in spirit, they know they need God's forgiveness. That's where verse 9 comes in. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They know that they, they violated God's commands. And they need strength from God to see the changes that God calls them to make. So first of all, they know their sin and need of forgiveness. But secondly, being poor in spirit means that you know you need a savior. It means you know you need a savior. Unless a person is poor in spirit, he will never understand Jesus. You know, the message of the gospel is this, is that Jesus Christ came to die for sin. He came to pay the penalty of sin for his people, to take it on himself and to take it off them, that he would be punished so that they would not be punished, so that they would have life, and he would take on their death. He was crucified, he was buried, he was raised again to life. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. And unless we see our own need of forgiveness, we will never receive his death in place of our sin. We'll never see his death on the cross as payment for our sins. We'll never ask him to forgive us. And that's how we miss heaven. But the poor in spirit, they gain the kingdom of heaven as they confess their sins and they receive Christ. They say something like, God, there is nothing good in me, nothing good in me that you would accept me. I've sinned against your holy law. I need forgiveness. Unless you forgive me, I have no hope. But you've sent Christ. A third quality of the poor in spirit is the poor in spirit pray. Someone who is arrogant will not pray. They think that they have all that they need to please God. They think they don't need God's help. They act like they can do enough things to obligate God to reward them. They can buy their way out of trouble. They can medicate away their suffering and drugs or alcohol. They can change themselves, but they will not ask God for help. But the poor in spirit know they need God, the Holy Spirit, to change them. We don't have the power to change and please God by ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit to fill us, to inspire us, to move us. See, it's only when we are poor in our own spirit that we can know the true spirit, the power of God, the Holy Spirit, inside of our lives. If we're too proud to make any room for the Holy Spirit, we will not experience his power. The poor in spirit realize they lack something in themselves. And that is how they find super abundant help from God himself. The power of the Holy Spirit working, acting in them. We don't have power in ourselves, but there is unimaginable power in the Holy Spirit. And when we drop the pretense, we drop our pride, and we ask for God's help, that's when the Holy Spirit comes to help. He fills us. And that's why we need to pray. Instead of looking inward in ourselves, instead of looking to our government to solve our problems, we look to God for the help that we need. How do we become poor in spirit? We need to pray. We have hard hearts. 
you know, we, we are so prone to self-deception. Um, ones who are rich in spirit are the ones the most, they're um, very unlikely to see that they're need. And that's why we need to pray. God, make me poor in spirit. God, humble my heart. Help me to see my need. Take away my pride. Show me your grace. Help me live a life of dependence on you. We pray that. And as, we, as we pray it, we have a hope of God answering it. Luke eleven thirteen. Jesus said this. Jesus said, he's talking about prayer. And he says, you know, you all, you know how to give good gifts to your children. He says, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Ask, you know, say, God, show me how much I need me, how much I need you. Make me poor in spirit and fill me with your spirit. And he'll answer that. So the second quality we want to see in verse 4 is mourning. Uh, blessed are those who mourn. Are we mourning over sin or are we self-satisfied? Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And again, it's not a quality we think that is a blessed person, someone who is favored by God. We often think a person who is favored by God is happy. Maybe they're carefree. Maybe they seem to have no troubles. Um, they don't need comfort because they never had any problems to begin with. You know, to me, Instagram is a picture of this. You know, people on Instagram, they post their pictures. They post their favorite pictures up there. And, you know, as we look at those lives, you know, they look so perfect. You know, people traveling the world. They're with their family in some awesome vacation. You know, there's some amazing concert or football game or they're at a party. They're at the woods. They have that perfect selfie, the perfect smile with the best people in the world. And it, it's, it's easy to get envious of those things. But few people put boring things in their lives. People don't put bad pictures up there. It's rare to see people be honest about their genuine difficulties that they're dealing with. It's, it's easy when you look at something like that to think they have it all together and we don't. Just this week I saw a story of a $59 million wedding that somebody posted on their TikTok. So it was a girl, she had a $59 million wedding and she posted it up there, and I was just reflecting on that in light of this, because it looks so perfect, it looks so idyllic. I mean, $59 million is a lot of money. You know, but I th you, know, you realize at the end of that $59 million expense is they have an average, ordinary marriage, just like any of us do, you know, with, with uh, conflicts and joys and pleasures and challenges and all those normal things that anybody has to work through. The thing that we need to remember is we cannot really know the favor of God if we're self-satisfied, if we're content with sin and evil in the world, or the sin and evil in our lives. God is displeased with that kind of self-satisfaction, and that leaves no place for him. God's blessing in this life is not for self-satisfaction or avoiding trouble. He blesses those who mourn. He shows favor to those who regret sin and evil of this life. So what does it mean to mourn? First thing, that we mourn that things are broken as a consequence of sin. We mourn the consequence of sin in our world. We mourn death. We mourn war. We mourn the natural disasters which leave people homeless. We see this in Jesus' um, interaction with Lazarus. Lazarus dies in John chapter 11, and Jesus goes to the tomb, and he's angry, and he, and he weeps, and he's sad. Um, you know, it's encapsulated in that phrase, Jesus wept. And yet we know he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and so why did, he, why did he weep? He wept because death was not part of God's original design. He wept because death causes so much sadness. 
He wept because the wages of sin is death, and so many had died. He wept, knowing that one day he would die to take away sin. The world we live in is a world of suffering, and Jesus calls us to take it seriously as he says that we're to mourn. Yeah, we don't allow ourselves to be overwhelmed by it, and we do what we can to help others in it, but we mourn in that. We take it seriously. Maybe you've lost a loved one to death. I mean, spiritual eyes see more than the loss of our loved ones. It sees how many have lost loved ones. The person who mourns grieves over the fact that sin is in the world, that people have to die at all, and that the same grief that we feel is grief that others have felt for so long. That's the mourning that God calls us to have of a broken world. We also mourn knowing that our best life is not in this world. When we understand sin and its consequences, we will mourn. We want another world. We want a better world without suffering. And the promise of God is that he will give it. That's the comfort he gives to us in glory. I love Revelation 21, 3 through 4. It shows this wonderful picture of heaven. Revelation 21, 3 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But the self-satisfied will not know comfort. They seek their best life now in this world. They don't look to the sufferings of others, not lifting a finger to help, not empathizing or praying. As they ignore the problems and sufferings of others, they fail to see how contrary it is for God's design. They also miss the comfort of God. They fail to enter in heaven. Another quality of mourning is to mourn over our own sin. We mourn over our own sin. It does get personal, deeply personal. We must mourn how we ourselves are twisted by sin, how we ourselves are twisted by evil. We mourn because we have sinned against God and we have sinned against others. And so David, King David, has this cry in Psalm 51. And, and, and that's ours as well. Psalm 51, verse 10. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He sees his twistedness. He sees his brokenness. And he mourns over it. Verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence. That's what he, that's what he knows he deserves. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12 is a cry for grace. Through tears, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. We must mourn over our own sin. We ask God to forgive our sins in Jesus Christ. And he promises, he will. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I'm reminded of Zephaniah 3.17, what God does as he forgives us in Christ. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so you no longer suffer reproach. The guilty conscience will be able to rest and trust in God knowing that sin is taken away. That's why the servant, part of the service I love is that assurance of pardon, right? We spend a few moments, we confess our sins. And it's not something we're just supposed to do to recite you know, a bunch of words and just get through that part. But it's something we're to examine our own life, examine our own heart. And as we say something, we might say, oh, yeah, I remember this this week. Or I remember that happened this morning. I remember these things. But then what happens after that? 
an assurance of pardon, a promise from God's word to bring comfort to those who have a guilty conscience, to those who know they have sinned against God's law, to those who know that they deserve God's judgment, and to know that God has taken away their sin in Jesus Christ. What a joy. What a joyful part of the service that should be to know that our sins are taken away. Do you look for a better home? Do you see the way you've sinned against God? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The third quality we see in verse 5, meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now it's helpful to think about how, uh, here, how powerful empires try to dominate the earth, right? Because it says about inheriting the earth. And so, you know, what dominant empires will tend to do, they'll try to conquer other countries by violence or by force in order to possess what? More earth, more ground for their nation. We see this happening in, in Ukraine. Russia says, well, we want more earth, and so we're going to invade this country, and we're going to try to take some of that over. And so the world thinks about that in ways other than just warfare, because the world says the best way for you to get what you want is to bully your way into it. If someone isn't doing what you want, whether it's your husband, your wife, your kids, employees, you know, the clerk at the desk, whatever, well, just throw your weight around until you get your way. Use your authority, use your words, use aggression to gain ground in life. And Jesus says that's not the way of God. Jesus shows us another way to inherit the earth, and it's by meekness. And that's strange to us. The sort of people think they will take over the earth by their power, but it's not them that actually inherits the earth, it's the meek. That is a different way of thinking about things. The violent thing they get the earth by their own efforts. The meek know that only God can build his kingdom. So now we might wonder what we mean by meekness here. The world dismisses the idea of meekness as something bad. They say it's weak, but meekness is not weakness. And they rhyme together, but they're they are different ideas because meekness is not about being timid. Being timid is not a virtue. You will not inherit the earth if you are timid, if you're afraid. The Bible says don't be afraid. The Greek word here is the word praus, which literally means strength under control. Strength under control. It was a word that was used to describe war horses in training. In ancient Greece, a war horse was trained to be meek, to be prous, to be strong and powerful, and yet under control and willing to submit to the man who was with them. And so meekness is operating under conviction to use power for good in obedience to Jesus Christ. Meekness is operating under conviction to use power that we have for good in obedience to Christ. He refuses to use unjust violence, it seeks to meet the needs and interests of others, to seek their good. It recognizes the image of God in others, and it honors that image. And it utilizes the strength that God provides, not one from our own sheer willpower. It starts with the person realizing they don't make the rules, but God makes the rules. It starts by realizing that we can misuse power to try to dominate others instead of serving God. And unless you realize that God makes the rules, and not you, you can't be saved. I mean, meekness realizes that there is something wrong with us, that there is something that is in sin that needs to come under God's rules. You, you may have great talents and great abilities as you're creating God's image, but those need to come under God's rule. 
And until you come under that rule, until you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your king, as your lawgiver, you can't be saved. People say, I need to make my place in the world now. Maybe later I'll be spiritual, but right now I need to conquer. Right now I need to dominate. Right need to have my fun. But that's not God's way. There's no eternal inheritance of that. But if we surrender to Christ in meekness, use our gifts, energy, power, and work to his glory, we'll inherit the earth. And that's where the reward is. So those are the three things. Poor in spirit, godly mourning, godly meekness. Three things that won't happen inside of our lives unless we know Jesus personally. Every sermon has to wrap and it gets back to Jesus, who he is, not just his teaching, but who he is and what he did for us. So I want, to, I want you to think about this. You know, because if we think that this life is all that there is, and then all we're going to do is just keep up appearances. We just got to keep a hold of what we have. But if we know Christ, and we know that he was the one who was brought low, so to only to be later brought high, then we see our place in just following him in that same exact pattern. Right? He was poor in spirit. Right? We think about him coming into earth. Um, you know, he lived eternal son of God in heaven and he came and he became a man. He took our sins upon himself as he died on the cross. And in that weakness that he came in, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He mourned over sin. And he mourned over sin so deeply that he came to bear the penalty for it on himself. And he came in meekness. He did not come to destroy his enemies, but he came to give life and to pay the penalty of sin for his enemies. He conquered the hearts of his people by his love. He won his people in his own death and his own resurrection. His victory over the earth was through meekness. And so he went down into suffering, and then he went up. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He rules and reigns there. He prays for his people. And so if you want to know his power... You must join him in that descent, confessing your sin, repenting of it, trusting in him, and then knowing his love, knowing his purpose, knowing his joy. You become spiritually poor. You mourn. You become meek and follow him and know the power of his resurrection in your life. Because these qualities that we see here, they are his qualities. We enter them as we unite to Christ by faith. And, and how do you grow in the qualities? How do you grow in these attitudes? By studying his life, by following his words, by asking him to grow those things in you. I mean, that's your inheritance if you just draw near to Jesus in, in it. And that's why believing in Jesus, really understanding his life, committing to walk after him is so important. You have to remember, though, that Jesus has paid for my sins, that my life is in him. My life is not here. My life is not in my works, but it's in him in the thing he's already secured for me in his own death and resurrection. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you call us to be poor in spirit. You call us not to be proud. You call us to mourn and not to be self-satisfied. You call us to be meek and, and not oppressive. Father, we know what it means to be proud. We know what it means to be self-sufficient. We know what it means to be hurtful. And Lord, we know we need you to change us. We need you to work in us. Convict our hearts. Help us to know Jesus. Help us to draw near to Jesus. Help us to love him more and more. And as we know him, help us become more like him. Father, for your glory, for witness to the world, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together. You'll see the closing hymn.